Business class listeners, you're tuned into episode number 188 of Wisco Weekly. I'm your host, Dennis Wisco, and I am automotive's biggest fan and biggest critic. On today's episode, Rebecca Fannin joins me to discuss the business culture of U.S. and China relations. Indubitably, China's rise to power poses a serious competitive threat to the U.S business landscape. And of course, you can have more than one global business powerhouse. However, it's unclear on where it is that the United States economy and the business environment will be most competitive against China. Arguably, you can say that China has been copying a lot of what the United States has been doing for the past couple decades. And then the U.S may indeed also now be copying things that are going on in China. And this is all the things that we talk about on today's episode with Miss Rebecca Fannin. Upcoming on Wisco Weekly will be a mini-series evaluating the data-inspired decisions made by dealer principals during the pandemic. It's a critical look at the dealership space and effectively a call to action so that dealers do not repeat some of the mistakes and the financial mistakes that were made during the pandemic. So this will be released very soon. Thank you to Automotive Mastermind for their support of Wisco Weekly. And now let's get into the show. You are now tuned in to... The Wisco Weekly Experience. Mabuhay, bienvenidos, vitaita, vilkama, and welcome to Wisco Weekly Business Class listeners. Thanks for tuning into another episode. And my, oh my, oh my, let us continue to look at the U.S. business relations, the U.S. business culture. Of course, that's what we do on this show, right? We're we're taking a look at what the business culture is like, not just from the the business operation side, but we also have to take a look at policy and what's going on in other countries and international relations, which is why I'm looking forward to this conversation. This is like the the czar of U.S. and China relations that I have on my show today. My guest is a leading expert on global innovation, a top-selling author, and a media entrepreneur. The three books that my guest has written all focus on analyzing the U.S. versus China tech business culture. Silicon Dragon, which she wrote in 2008, Startup Asia in 2011, and her latest book, Tech Titans of China, which she wrote in 2019, which I have right here. And I did read this book here, and it's a really good book. It's, it's almost like this reference guide, listeners, of what's going on between U.S. and China. Her work and ideas are sought after by C CNBC, Forbes, and Bloomberg TV, to name a few. Today, Rebecca leads Silicon Dragon Ventures, a news, events, and membership platform. Men, women, and children, please welcome to the show, Mrs. Rebecca Fannin. Hello, how are you? It's good to see you, Rebecca. Hi, good to see you, too. It's, it's, it's been a minute. You know, the last time we both saw each other was kind of pre-COVID at your Silicon Dragon event in Los Angeles. I right. guess first, you know, tell me, 
obviously you survived 2020. How how has everything been treating you so far? I mean, obviously you, you look great. You have that same bright smile on your face. Like, how has everything been going for you if you had to encapsulate the last kind of year and three quarters now? Okay. Well, a lot has happened. When COVID hit, I took all of my live events online and started a new show called Ask a VC Anything. That's one major change. Okay. The other major change is I did several road trips and I did many interviews in the Midwest. And uh, actually, one of the companies I visited with was Lordstown Motors in Youngstown, Ohio, oh. during uh, these road trips. So I, I have and, a new book coming out. And and what what time of the year again was this? Was this this is summer? You said summer twenty twenty. Twenty. Okay. Okay. And then again at the end of twenty twenty, uh, and three road trips, uh, very lengthy road trips, and doing interviews in leading locations and leading innovators in all these markets that are typically overlooked. So Lordstown Motors was one of them, but a lot has changed at Lordstown Motors too. Uh, very much so, yeah. Yeah, but anyhow, a lot, this is all leading up to my next book, uh, which is going to be out uh, before too long. Uh, I've already written it, and it's in my publisher's hand. It's called The Great Reboot, how um, China, how, how we're beating back China. Give us a context of, of what that means, of, of where we were and where we are now. Well, the issue is that China has become a major rival to the U.S. in many tech markets. And the U.S. Uh, needs to respond. I've seen uh, startups responding, a lot of new innovations coming out of various markets, such as robotics in Pittsburgh, uh, 3D printing in Youngstown, uh, electric vehicles, um, biotech in Cleveland, um, other markets uh, have their own um, specialty. Uh, and I think the context is that China is the leading rival to the US uh, worldwide. Uh, this wasn't the case uh, 15 years ago when I wrote Silicon Dragon. Uh, and of course, nobody believed that China could even rival the US, but it has. Um, and now we know that uh, because we see Washington DC issuing a lot of regulations against uh, China, uh, listings in the US um, against mergers and acquisitions and investments in the US. And so there's been a real, what some people call a splinter net between the China uh, market and the US market. And that's where we are now. You know, one of the things that I loved how you characterized, uh, you know, U.S. versus China relations was you had mentioned in Tech Titans of China. And forgive me if I butcher this here. OK, so <laughs> it says something along uh, along the lines of China used to copy the United States. And then at some point, the U.S. started copying China. And so now you're so now you're now you're saying that there's a little bit more of the reverse happening again, where well maybe maybe it's not so much copying. Is is there a copying going on now? I mean, again with this latest book, if you were to give us a teaser, is that some is that like a supposition that you're making that China is back again to copying U.S. or where where are the levels mm -hmm. now? Yeah, not not really. I I think we got went through that transition of. 
China first copying all the US tech models like Google and Facebook and Yahoo, that, those were all copied. And Amazon and eBay, they were all copied and kind of did very well copying those. Uh, partly because these US companies were blocked from entering the China market, but also because you know the government funding and the entrepreneurship and the energy behind China market and the size of the Chinese market, the huge internet market, the huge mobile market, these are all drivers of China's boom. Uh, so we went through that copying and then we saw China innovating. And in many areas, uh, one that I can think of is uh, social media, for instance, and fintech. Uh, so WeChat, for instance, um, Facebook has arguably copied some of the features of WeChat. Uh, super apps came out of China. Now we see uh, Uber doing super apps. So many of the business models that came out of China in the, in the internet space, in the mobile space, were copied by the US. Um, but now uh, we're definitely seeing a separation where China's more going more its own way, the U.S. is going more its own way. Each is trying to become more self-reliant. Uh, although they're, the economies are very intermingled, so it's um, well. It, how, it's, how would yeah. you how would you characterize you know it their own way? So what wh what is China doing versus what are we doing? Well, for instance, in the five G uh, segment. China is developing its own 5G standards. Hmm. Yeah, so that's that's one element of it. Another element is China is developing its own semiconductors. Now that's been a real uh, hindrance for the China uh, progression in that China's semiconductor market is highly dependent on international sources. And now China is developing its own semiconductor market. So this, this is happening, and it, you can see it in the electric vehicle market, too. I know we're going to be talking about electric vehicles, but you can see it in that, too. Well, so, you know, I think this this time, this does kind of get us to that, you know, one of an area of interest on my end is, you know, I'm, I'm heavily uh, invested in not just monetarily, but like time, effort and energy and tears also in the capital markets, right? And obviously sure. the first couple or the last two, three weeks of the market have been absolutely terrible for, for most people. And so, but, you know, regardless, if you especially look at what happened in 2020 and the beginning of 2021, there was so much infusion of capital in the, what I will call the electric mobility space. If it's if it's automakers themselves, uh, such as Lordstown Motors, um, or if it's in some sort of supplier like QuantumScape, you know, uh, and, and batteries, right? There's been so much infusion of capital in the in this electric mobility space that it makes me wonder where does this now kind of put us in relation to China, where I feel like every time I was going to a conference, including yours, the talk was always China's ahead of us in the electric vehicle space. China's ahead of us in the infrastructure space. China was always ahead of us. And yeah. a lot of that had to do with their kind of, uh, you know, I don't know the best way to characterize it. Not, it they're, they're, they're one government rule kind of system where they're able yeah. to really, you know, deploy strategies and, and money much quicker than we yeah. can. However, again, we're there's been billions and billions of dollars that have entered the capital markets now. So what effect does that have with regards to how we rate 
against China or how China rates against us with this infusion of capital? Well, yeah, I think uh, there were at least five Chinese EV makers that raised money in the past few years, largely through SPAC, yep. know, the reverse merger on public exchanges. And they raised a lot of money that way. So you had uh, uh, Lordstown bid and uh, Canoe and Fair uh, Day Future uh, and uh, uh, others with uh, the uh, straight public listing like NEO which had a very successful public listing. One of the top IPOs of the year. Yep. Um, so these companies really cashed up now. They, they have a lot of capital, but in the EV make space, you have to have a lot of capital. If you've seen so many of these EV makers fall by the wayside because they didn't have enough capital to start production. Um, and now these companies are fairly well capitalized and I think they're give Tesla run for the money in China. Um, uh, it's starting to turn to a more local um, market in China where Tesla, I, I remember when Tesla first came into the market, in fact, uh, we had uh, one of the VPs from Tesla in Shanghai speak at our Shanghai event and they brought a Tesla market to the Shanghai event. And of course, there are all these con consumers milling about and they were checking it out. This is like five years ago, maybe six okay. years ago now. And uh, that was before Tesla had its Shanghai factory, but um, certainly um, I think uh, Tesla is going to face a lot of competition now in China from these local rivals like Neo and Xpeng uh, that um, are cashed up. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was uh, just uh, earlier today, I was kind of looking at what the market cap is of some of these uh, companies, and specifically the Chinese automakers, right? So like NEO, you mentioned. NEO has a market cap, you know, as of today of $55 billion. Xpeng is at $30 billion. So that's $85 billion right there. And then let's yeah. say if you take uh, their rival to Uber, Didi, they're at yeah. $36 billion, right? So that's it's over $100 billion that has been infused and well, this is kind of a, a cross pollination here where, you know, it's these are obviously Chinese companies, but a lot of the money has been generated here in the United States. But again, this is this is a lot of money that that they're getting. But there's also now kind of, you know, there's a we're also a beneficiary or an investor, too, of what goes on in China. Well, I think those days are ending because of the restrictions on Chinese companies going public in the U.S., so that that has played out already. Well, we, some of these companies went public at the right time. Yeah, right. And and I mean, you know, th this takes us a little bit away from the EV, but I know you're very familiar with Jack Ma and uh, Alibaba. They're, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I follow their stock, you know, often. And so it's like to see that stock tank from its highs during the pandemic and especially the fact that it hasn't kept pace with the e-commerce you know uh, uh business in general i mean e-commerce obviously boomed during the pandemic what what's do you, what what's going on with baba do you know any insights on why why they're not performing uh for, at least from their stock perspective um well there's a lot of news and rumors about what happened to Jack Ma, the leader of Alibaba, he really kind of disappeared. Uh, 
gone underground as, as the leading force of the company. Uh, there's been a lot of restrictions on Alibaba now of uh, breaking it up. Um, breaking it, because Alibaba became one of those super apps where, well, more than a super app, but they had their FinTech business, they had their logistics business, they had their e-commerce business, they had their grocery business. Um, and Alibaba actually made a big investment in Xpeng, one of the EV makers. So Alibaba's had its fingers in a lot of in a lot of um, places, and I think the Chinese government is uh, trying to uh, control the power of these tech titans, uh, which I wrote about in Tech Titans of China. They they actually became so big that uh, so powerful that they even uh, almost became. Um, you know, a threat to the Chinese government's dominance yeah. and control and power and overall. So now, or at least, or at least that was the narrative, right? I mean, that's that right. Was, that was I, I don't know if that's really the case, but uh, I certainly, uh, China government has uh, cracked down on these Chinese tech titans uh, within the within the Chinese market, and then, of course, then that plays out internationally. So investors look at that; it's all you know, it's a negative. It's a negative. Then this is going to uh, slow Alibaba's growth overall, um, and so that becomes a huge negative for investors. And uh, you know, with with all the money that has been poured into these U.S. companies, these uh, pu new publicly traded companies, are, are you able to give us a sense of like, well? This this investment in all these companies should now really put us ahead of China. Are we more neck and neck of you know where where they're at in their electric mobility um, space? Well, uh, yeah, I think um, the adoption of electric vehicles in China is ahead of the U.S. Uh, and uh, I think that this. Uh, capital raising that these Chinese EV makers have done will uh, fuel their momentum. They'll, they'll gain even more. And you, you, and we see the government behind uh, some of this uh, as well, because the government is pushing uh, supercharging stations nationwide. The government is giving subsidies to electric vehicle makers. Uh, so all of these factors are driving EV sales in China, and um, uh, China has uh, the lead of the worldwide market in EV sales. China is the leading uh, nation in the world in terms of EV sales. You know, you had mentioned the- uh... The U.S. is way behind. Europe, Europe is ahead of the U.S. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that even Europe has a bigger um, electric vehicle market than the U.S. I thought the U.S. was kind of second to China with regards to uh, the, the electric vehicle market. Well, Europe has about 31 percent of the electric vehicle sales in the world. U.S. has about 17 percent. China is in the lead with about 44 percent. Yeah. Yeah. So I the U.S. Is, is, is catching up. Yeah, I mean, the U.S. needs to catch up. But of course, what you're seeing with Ford and GM, and uh, they're getting into it in a big way. 
uh, with these uh, new trucks that are coming out and with the new vehicles that are coming out. And of course, Tesla has new vehicles coming out. And even Lordstown Motors has new vehicles coming out. So you do see, and Canoe as well. So you do see uh, the US makers, uh, uh, you know, China consumers have been slow to get into the EV market in the US. Uh, it, it's, it's really slow. Even I see a real big compare, a real big um, gap between California and I'm here on the East Coast right now, but there's a big gap between California where I see Tesla all the time in, in Silicon Valley, really working from, but here on the East Coast, uh, you know, vehicle uh, charging stations are largely empty. Uh, Teslas are much rarer than in California. It's all SUVs, right? Everyone has to have their SUV. So yeah. something that I was reading here uh, most recently, this is from one of your most recent blog posts, was that two-thirds of startup investing goes to three coastal states, California, New York, and Boston. Meanwhile, seven core states of the Rust Belt and Great Lakes capture only about 6% of venture spending nationwide. So that obviously makes sense. I mean, especially with California being the tech capital of the world, New York being the financial capital of the world, Boston, I don't know what, what's going on in Boston. They got, they got sports. You know, I don't know what else. They have, they have a lot of universities. Oh, Boston that's true. Yes, yes, that's, that's right. Universities as well. Um, so with regards then to everything, the, the flyover states essentially, you yeah. know, so the this is an area then of opportunity or is, is this something that's like you know maybe not exactly a lost cause there's just we we have to be very strategic about what we do in these you know midwestern states so as to invest our money wisely in, in that part of the country well yeah that's well said i think and uh i think it's a good point that you can't go into the Midwestern market and presume it's going to be like Silicon Valley. It, it's very different. Uh, it's more industrial and manufacturing oriented. It's more specialized. It's not really into uh, the software and the semiconductor type companies that you see in Silicon Valley. And uh, it's each market each city is very different from the next. So you can't just have a uniform Midwestern strategy. You have to have a differentiated strategy by city, by location. And, Each and market this, is very different. Um, and this, this reminds me too, uh, there's a documentary on Netflix. Uh, I, I think uh, the Obamas had kind of been a co-executive producers of something where they were showing a Midwestern town, a factory in the Midwest that was run by an American company. Eventually it was bought out by a Chinese company and that Chinese company wanted to bring in their workers. So then oh, all yeah. of a sudden you saw this side-by-side -side comparison of American work culture versus Chinese work culture. And I mean, wow, I, like that was... <laughs> That was a stark difference of what you saw. And actually, I, you even um, mentioned in the book of this, what was it, like the 996? Nine, nine, oh, yeah, 996, yeah. Share with us what 996 is. Oh, well, 996 is this incredible work ethic in China where 
young workers put in 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week or more. Or, or it's an incredible work ethic in China. We don't have anything like it in, in Silicon Valley. People work weekends, and you know they they sleep at the office. It's a little bit like Silicon Valley during the dot com boom, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but they're all racing after this market. It's wide open market. Um, but I wanted to mention something since you brought up that company uh, that was an automaker uh, that uh, was in the documentary, and that's the company that's in Dayton. That uh, it was a GM factory. GM shut it down. Yeah, that's right. Um, that's right. Yep. Yeah, and then uh, the Chinese came in and they bought the plant and they converted it to a, a windshield manufacturer. Yeah, right. uh, I actually visited that plant and met with the CEO there in Dayton. And it was very interesting because I did see the Chinese working alongside the Anglos, alongside the Blacks, and it was a very diverse uh, kind of workforce. I also saw the robots on the, on the, on the factory floor. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, and was, uh, the what, CEOs, so was, the, was the was the documentary pretty like accurate in its depiction of the American worker who was like, okay, I'm, I'll I work at eight, so that means I will arrive to work at seven fifty seven, and <laughs> you know check in at eight, and then it's I I stop work at five o'clock, so that means at four fifty seven I'm gonna start <laughs> like undressing. And then whereas the, the Chinese workers were like, okay, these gates to this factory aren't even open yet. I, I need to get in. And, you know, they're, they're sleeping in tight quarters. And then, you know, their whole motivation was they're making money here so they could send it back home to China, which is, which is I can relate to that. I mean, I think that's definitely part of growing up uh, Asian myself. I mean, that's something my dad would always do. He would always make money here and send it back home to the Philippines. So I, I'm empathetic towards that. But that was a very okay. strong motivator to their work ethic. Well, yeah, I think both sides have learned from each other. I hope so. Yeah, have these two extremes. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, yeah, the documentary was really fascinating. I, I found it fascinating. When I went there, it was fascinating to see uh, such diversity on, on the factory floor and they're all working together. And actually the Chinese um, turned that plan into a profitable operation and they're expanding. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of what's happening with Lordstown Motors now. There's, I forget, but there was a Chinese company that has now at least bought the building. That's right. It's Taiwanese. Um, Foxconn, the electronics manufacturer. Oh, that's right. Yeah, uh, they bought into it, uh, or you know, it, uh, they're planning to, um, you know, start producing that truck, the endurance, the e-pickup truck that okay. uh, President Trump uh, in his day and Vice President Biden in his day they raved about it. They got such publicity for that truck, that pickup truck. It was amazing. Um, and uh, yeah, so then, uh, of course, we saw the downside that they just ran out of money. They just were not going to have enough money to produce that vehicle in spite of the fact that they uh, were able to um, pull off. Uh, they were not going to be able to get that vehicle uh, out of the factory floor. <laughs> and uh, uh, actually, I got the tour of the whole factory with the, the then CEO, and we were riding around on, on his um 
uh, I guess, golf cart or whatever you would call it throughout the whole fact. It's huge. It's, it's unbelievably big. It's like the size of 100 football fields. And uh, at its height, um, at its peak, GM had something like over 10,000 workers there. So, so like this Lordstown, this is one of those, uh, I'm going to be fairly critical here, but this is one of those areas where it's like, of course we need to have the free market to figure out if there is an actual solution or if there's an actual problem to be solved with a proposed solution. But in the case of Lordstown Motors, it doesn't look too good when, you know, the CEO, like, uh, I mean, look, uh, I'm, I'm entitled to my own opinion here, Rebecca, but there was definitely some very misleading statements he made. I'll leave it at that about, about the company and, and their pre-orders. Mm -hmm. And then when you see the stock tank and you see investors bailing out and then you have it rescued by a Chinese company. I mean, Taiwanese. It's Taiwanese company. Oh yeah, you don't want to get Chinese and Taiwanese <laughs> messed up. But then you see Thai, a, a Taiwanese company come in and save yeah. it. Like, I don't know. I don't. I don't know what to think about that. Yeah, yeah. It's um, you know, I think they might have a shot at it because uh, Foxconn can help with supply chain management and can help with some operational know-how. And it's the leading manufacturer itself. So in a way, they could gain not only capital, but some expertise. Who, who uh, do you, who do you think wins? It's a startup. It's a startup. Who, who do you think wins in this? I mean, if, we, if, if this was a, I mean, maybe you won't characterize it as zero sum. But if you had to, with Lordstown Motors still being in the United States, still producing a truck in the United States, but now owned by a Chinese company, who wins in that? Well, if the truck actually delivers on its promise uh, with its new technology, then I think the consumer wins. The U.S. consumer wins. They're not going to be selling that truck internationally, at least. That was the original plan. It's a total U.S. and it also for um, for fleet for fleet. They were originally targeting this, and I thought that was smart that they were going to target the truck uh, toward fleet sales, not try to go after the general public. What about with regards to just you know you had touched upon the like the charging stations? Like if if we do look at more of the infrastructure now um, of the Chinese yeah. economy versus our economy. What's right. what's your assessment going on there? Well, uh, China government can put in electric charging stations across the country and help to fuel the market of electric vehicles. And even the privately funded companies, or now that are public, like Xpeng, has put money into electric car because that's that's the real key. You know, if you feel like you're going to run out of juice midway, you're not going to buy an electric vehicle. So you have to have that network. The U.S. is behind on that too. Um, so the U.S. needs to catch up on that infrastructure. And this is something that China is really good at: is infrastructure. If you've been in China, like I have, like a hundred times, uh, the highways and the railroads are all, and airports are all. Um, top rate. 
uh, brand new also because they didn't have to take, you know, legacy old things and try to convert them. They were just starting from scratch. So that's been a real benefit for China. Um, so I think uh, the, uh, the subsidies that the government has, the uh, electric, uh, the government's push toward the electric charging stations, that, that's all going to be, and also you can get a, a one factor in the Chinese market is getting a license. It, it's very difficult to get a license and very, it can be very costly to get a license to drive in China. Um, so I think some of the EV buyers are getting uh, a benefit there too. You said it's it's very costly and difficult to get a, a driver's license in China. Yeah, there's a it, there's a real you have to uh, there's a queue. I mean, is that it? Is it is it just a queue of? It's a queue. Okay. There's also a price. It, I mean, it used to be like almost as much as ten thousand to get a license. Ten thousand. I don't I don't know what it is right now, but it was about ten thousand to get a license. So this this held back, but I think. Uh, I'm not so sure what the price is now, but it still uh, can be difficult and uh, time uh, consuming to get a license in China. Hmm. So I remember going when I first go, went to China, it was mostly um, the private car market was mostly taxis and government vehicles. There, there were very few <laughs> private cars. And now, you know, Uber, uh, DD is in there with, all, with, with its whole fleet of, um, of cars. And and vehicles, and uh, we've seen, you know, all of these electric vehicle makers uh, come on strong in China. And you know, an interesting thing about uh, them as well is when I was doing the reporting on Xpeng, uh, I visited the Xpeng facility in Silicon Valley, met with the CEO there, and uh, no, I just I you know it made me realize that their whole strategy is about the smart car. It, the connected car is not so much just the, the the electric vehicle capacity, but the capacity to have all this entertainment inside of the car. Hmm. The connected car, the smart car. That's where China. Uh, I think they've got that down. They 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 have that. They're coming at the EV market from a technology standpoint, and that's a real strong point. Uh, and the U.S. Because we have been in the car market and the vehicle market, we're coming at it from an auto mentality, where China has the tech edge here. I think that's a real differentiator. That's 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 such a, a very um, clarifying statement, Rebecca. Because I've been thinking about more and more of how the U.S. again, I'll call it the electromobility market or automotive market as a whole now, you know, I think we're a little bit lost. I think we're a little bit lost. This is kind of based on the last like four years that I've been just like following the space and just seeing how, uh -huh. you know, of course we're trying to find all these free market solutions to the problems, but there's not really a coherent unified vision of what this new, you know, automotive electric mobility market looks like and how it will serve us. And part of that is back in the seventies to, you know, even nineties, that's, that's the argument that I'll make is seventies to nineties, getting a vehicle was about freedom. You know, it was about like, we need to get a driver's license at 16 so we can get away from our parents. So we have our own space. We need that freedom. 
to now because you do have ride sharing companies, right? Like now people are delaying their license, not getting it at 16 here in the United States. And, you know, I had this conversation with Karma uh, yesterday and Mm -hmm. the gentleman over there, Jeff DeFrank, who's their director of technology, said that, yeah, we're slowly pivoting. The automotive market is slowly pivoting into more automotive tech, which is why you have like the Karmas of the world and the Fiskers and the Lucids and the Canoes that are starting to come around where they're not really your traditional automaker because now they're actually even willing to like outsource their technology to say hey you know ups we'll we'll build you the truck now you know you don't have to go to ford now to do that you can go to us we have the plot we have the platform to do it and i think that's the reason that you're starting to see much more of the momentum for electric vehicles coming from the west coast not from detroit well so tell us Maybe something that we can kind of be on the lookout for. I always like to look at things in the in the ways of hedging. If we are to keep an eye out over the next year between U.S. the U.S. automotive economy, the U.S. electric mobility economy versus the competitor China, what do you foresee occurring in both of those economies that we can keep an eye out for? I think they'll continue to be growth markets. I, I think we'll continue to see some companies stumble because of the cost of production and the R&D that goes into making a vehicle. Uh, I think uh, we'll continue to see alliances between the U.S. and overseas market for uh, equipment. For, I'm thinking of uh, Lordstown Motors, uh, which was working with uh, Samsung and now working with uh, Foxconn as well, both international companies. And uh, they're also working with GM. Uh, of course, GM was the major backer of Lordstown. They actually helped GM buy that plant. Yeah. And uh, were, they were an investor in Lordstown as well. Uh, so I think we're going to continue to see this international alliance with electric vehicles. Uh, I think Tesla is going to continue to push the China market strongly. And uh, their factory there is up and running. Of course, that was subsidized by the Chinese government. <laughs> um, you know, they got tax breaks on that. So those are just some of the uh, trends that I'm seeing. Uh, I think it'll be difficult for U.S. makers to get into the China market, uh, particularly in the EV market, because of these all these local rivals that are highly capitalized now. And with regards to, you know, the in, like infrastructure space, still same thing, collaboration uh, happening also, or is this is the infrastructure of both countries very, you know, autonomous and inclusive you know in a sense that well there's the u.s infrastructure only u.s can fix that there's not going to be any chinese influence companies technologies that could help with that and then vice versa too well because of u.s has put uh, limitations on investment from china into sensitive areas i think that's not going to happen yeah okay right right yeah i i'm thinking of the railroad example where there was going to be 
investment in the, in the U.S. Uh, railroad, maybe it was the high speed, uh, but uh, yeah, that's just not going through now. Any sensitive area, and uh, I guess transportation is considered a sensitive area because data is all wrapped up in it, right? It's a smart transportation today. Uh, that that's a sensitive area, so I don't think we're going to see much help from China in, yeah, that... in our infrastructure. Well, that that data piece is actually a very kind of big thing, right? Because here in America, at least, right, we're we're very like that data is very private and personal to us, and yeah. the sharing of that data is 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 always going to be in contention. I don't know yeah. what, how do you how do you feel about that? Are 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 you one to think that your your movements, whether you're walking or taking a, a train or taking your car? How do you feel about if that data were shared, commingled with so many other entities, public and private? Well, personally, I'm against it. I, mm. You know, I, I often have my location turned off on my phone. <laughs> Don't bother me. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, I... But in China, you know, that, that data privacy issue, it's not, it's a big issue in, in, in the U.S. and Western markets, but yeah. it's not such a big issue in China. It's pretty much accepted that, you're, you know, the data is, data is shared. Data is not your personal property. Is, so, so data over there is, is not even politicized? I mean, obviously, I, I, I know that they probably can't do a whole lot, especially if the if it's coming down from the government, but is it, is there's, there's like no contention, no debates, no protests over, over data sharing. It's not going to be protest over it. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, I mean, yeah, you know, even the case of Alibaba, this is one of the issues, uh, you know, that the tech Titans were like, if you shop on Alibaba, who do you think owns that data, right? You shopping on Alibaba, Alibaba owns that. But now the Chinese government wants their piece of it. So it's yeah. something to be it's something to be aware of. Yeah. yeah, that's 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 interesting. The data culture in both the U.S. and, and yeah, China. the data culture is very different. I mean, so again, this is where it's 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 this is actually good to get an understanding then of where U.S. and China relations will continue to differ, where there is alignment, and then you know essentially where there will be a separation, um, you know, between both economies and where where we will head, where they will head. Right. Um, and so uh, obviously you'll, you'll, be, you'll be following this closely. I hope that uh, <laughs> you, by the time the next book comes out, what is it called? The Great Re the Great. Well, Re right now, right now it's entitled The Great Reboot. The Great Reboot. Right. Well, well by the time that one comes out, um, we, we hope to have you back on here so you could give us more of an update. Uh, obviously, uh, China's our biggest competitor here in the United States and I don't know anyone else who follows uh, these, uh, the you know the, the the these relations so closely as you do. So, well, it's a fascinating area. It's very yeah. fascinating. I mean, which, by the way, how did how how the hell did you get involved in this? Like, of all people, how did how did, how did you how did you get how did you get involved? Yeah, um, I as a journalist, and uh, I was in New York City editing an international business magazine and I first trip to Hong Kong back in 92 and I 
I enjoyed the um, experience and uh, my parents were always big adventurers and big travelers and big international travelers and um, they're academics. And so I, I just gravitated towards um, the story and started going regularly and writing for magazines based out of Hong Kong uh, and uh, just following the story uh, from that. And the story was uh, so interesting <laughs> and I got to you know work from Beijing and Shanghai and, and uh, Hong Kong and um, other places in Asia uh, and then that led me to um, write these three books and uh, also actually the second one has a little bit of an India spin to it I should tell you that Startup Asia has a lot of India content in it okay. and other Asian markets like Singapore and Taiwan too but the other, the other two are pretty China, U.S. focused. Um, so I, I just got deeper and deeper into it. You know, I, I followed the venture capital money from Silicon Valley into China, into India, and I, I wrote the stories. <laughs> and so let me ask you this: almost like, uh, you know, if the, obviously Rebecca wears many different hats, the hat that she has worn now for a very long time is to really study. Uh, you know, U.S.-China relations more from a business perspective. Is there another story that you would want to write about U.S. and China? The one I just wrote is the big one. Is oh, so this 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 great reboot. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Is it is it so? Then is it a combination of business and kind of like it was? Would you say it's more business, more cultural? There's some social elements to it, and there's some mm. politics, and there's business as well, and there's a little bit of personal in there too. Oh, look at yeah. that! All right, well, I'm looking <laughs> forward to to reading that book then. Okay. Uh, well, tell tell us uh, tell us uh, again. Uh, you you host a show, a virtual show called Ask a VC. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Right. Well, we started it in April 2020 when COVID hit and we had the first guy we had on, the first venture capitalist we had on was Bill Tai, who was the original investor in Zoom. So that was, that was pretty good. Yeah, then the third one we had was the guy who named Zoom, uh, Jim Zimmerman, another VC from Silicon Valley. He's the fellow who named Zoom, came up with the name Zoom. Uh, so uh, we've had, um, VCs from around the globe on the show, and it's an hour-long Q&A show and chat, a little bit like your show here, uh, with some audience questions because people want to meet the VCs and they want to mingle and they want to connect with the VCs. And so I've had people on uh, Gary Rochelle, for instance, uh, from Chimin, had people from BGP Capital, from Lightspeed, and uh, you name it. Uh, they've been on the show because I've done, I don't know, 35 of them already. Amazing. And is but there a show? Actually, today, today we have a fellow from New York, uh, Nihal Mehta, uh, who is a leading, uh, he's a co founder of ENIAC, E N I A C Ventures. And okay. he's here in New York and he's done five startups, five successful startups, invested in all kinds of. Uh, funds and is an angel investor today and his wife is the lady who uh, runs Girls Who Code so they're kind of a dynamic couple he's on today and then the, the following week we have the guy um, 
Jake C from Lightspeed, one of the original partners from Light. All these guys are uh, have done extremely well. Are you are you doing this week? Are you doing this weekly then? I have been, yeah. Okay. Uh, and yeah, what, I, I, what... I, a little bit of a break when I was writing the book really intensely there for about a, a five weeks. And is there how, how can how can people find? Is there a website or do they go to your your website right now? Silicon yeah, uh, com has the has the uh, events listed. Uh, we're going to have John Chambers, the former CEO of Cisco, who's now a venture capitalist. He's going to be on our show November second at uh, five thirty, and he's a great guy. I'm sure. I'm sure. He's uh, many in your audience know who he is, uh, so I don't have to say that, but he's originally from West Virginia. That might not be so well known. <laughs> well, good. Okay. So um, I'll, 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 I'll post some links, business class. I'll post some links on the episode page uh, for you to find all this information. Rebecca, thank you so much. It's it's really good to see you. I'm glad to see you're doing well. I'm glad to see and and hear about this upcoming book. That's exciting. Like I said, I'm going. I'm looking forward to uh, to reading it. And uh, I hope you'll come back and tell us more about what's going on with the U.S. China market. Yeah. Yeah. No, I enjoyed being a guest on your show. You're doing a great job with it. Thank you very much. Business class listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode of Wisco Weekly as we end every episode. Cheers, Brostlhain, Kipis, Nastravi, Salud, Kampai, Mabru, Tutsins, Gambe, Yamas, Nastarovie, Vos, Salute, and Saudi to the customer experience. Business class listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode of Wisco Weekly. If you enjoyed the show, please do provide Wisco Weekly a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'll be here again next week. Wisco Weekly is providing this information for educational purposes only. We are not providing legal, accounting, or financial advisory services, and this is not a solicitation or recommendation to buy or sell any stocks, options, or other financial instruments or investments. Examples that address specific assets, stocks, options or other financial instrument transactions are for illustrative purposes only and may not represent specific trades or transactions that we have conducted. In fact, we may use examples that are different or the opposite of transactions we have conducted or positions we hold. This site and any information or training therein is also not intended as a solicitation for any future relationship, business or otherwise between the members or participants and the moderators. No express or implied warranties are being made with respect to these services and products. All investing and trading in the securities market involves risk. Any decisions to place trades in the financial markets, including trading in stock or options or other financial instruments, is a personal decision that should only be made after thorough research, including a personal risk and financial assessment, and the engagement of professional assistance to the extent you believe necessary.